Good to see everyone this morning. Good to be with you. One, just double click there. If you are a member of the Hill, please be here February uh, on the 20th. As you know, you already know, we have been discussing for some months now uh, about doing a somewhat of an addition to the front of our building <clears throat> out front. So we will need you here to talk through those details and work through what it's going to look like to build a, a space here where we can better serve our neighbors, uh, better have access to intersect our lives with our neighbors right out front in the front side of our building. So please be here on the 20th that we can uh, present some things and have a family discussion about how we move forward. Life is full of repetition. Uh, get any head nods there? Yes. Much of our daily routine is in fact comprised, if we were to distill it down, probably to just a series of repetitive things we accomplish. There's other things that we do, but there's a lot of repetitive uh, things that we do each day. For the most part, you wake up in a similar repetitive fashion every day. Uh, you wake up at the same time, probably to the same sound coming from your alarm, which probably receives the same response that you give every day. You're either the type of person probably who jumps right up, I don't want to hear from you, or you might be the person who begins, the, the, the noise of the, of the alarm begins a series of snoozes, which in turn leads to you getting up at the last minute and rushing in. <laughs> and then once you get up, right, you get dressed. Something uh, you do every day, uh, multiple times if you are a preteen girl. And then at some point you brush your teeth. Assuming you change your clothes uh, and brush your teeth at least twice a day. I make an assumption. I hope it's safe. Over a period of 60 years, you will have done those two tasks 43,000 times alone each. So 86,000 times together. There are a myriad of other things that you could probably think through or point out that you do repetitively every day about looking for your key on your keychain to go into the door? I don't know about you, but sometimes that's hard to do um, unless I find the little right ridge. I don't have much of a light on my front door. So some days I think I even do this five or six differing times. Repetition, though, it does go further than just mundane things. We celebrate birthdays. We will attend multiple weddings and even funerals are something that we do repeatedly throughout life. Life is full of repetition. But there are some things you only do once. You're born once. While we attend multiple funerals over and over again, you will only die once. You only forget your spouse's birthday once. <laughs> but it is safe to say we are much more familiar with repetition than with those things which only occur one time. This morning, we're going to be finishing up chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews, which is located within a section of Scripture contrasting the Old and New Covenant. It's been a theme we have been addressing since the middle of chapter 8. And by covenant, very simply, broadly speaking, what be, what's meant is a relationship between God and people. In the Old Covenant, prior to Jesus, God chose to enter into a specific relationship with a specific group of people, which required certain terms, stipulations, promises, and even privileges. And due to their sin, 
at the heart of this relationship was the necessity of sacrifice, was the necessity of the shedding of blood, something we've mentioned the last couple weeks. And this was a repeated and ongoing thing that could never in fact solve the real issue as was our focus last week. The shedding of blood, the sacrificing of animals for the atonement of sin was as much a part of the life of the Israelite under the old covenant as your alarm clock is to you. It happened every day ongoing. Relationship with God under the old covenant required the repeated spilling of blood and the ongoing sense of insecurity before God. But due to Jesus' superior sacrifice in the new covenant, repetition is over, brothers and sisters. And our security is in fact sure now. And the reason for this is that by the shedding of Jesus' blood, He accomplished our once-for-all redemption and secured our eternal inheritance. I want to show you that from our text today. That by the shedding of Jesus' blood, He accomplished our once-for-all redemption and secured our eternal inheritance. Chapter, chapter 9, I'm going to begin reading. We left off last week in verse 14. If you remember, I'm going to pick up in verse 15, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. Beginning in verse 15. It says, Therefore He, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have, have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as, is, as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Father, as we pause after the reading of your word, Lord, we end with this 
this call here about eagerly awaiting for you. And God, I pray that would be the posture of our heart. Even now as we sit under your word. That in light of who you are, in light of what you've done. God, we would be those who eagerly await. God, as we walk through this text, um, a full text with a lot of side avenues we have to kind of unpack a little bit, God, keep the focus on Jesus. Help us to see the beautiful fountain that was opened to us by the shedding of his blood. Wash us afresh today. Remind us anew of the beauty of Christ, the glory of his work on our behalf, and the internal inheritance that he secured for us as believers. To that end we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe we noted last week when we began uh, our sermon in chapter 9, I ask you to turn your eyes back to the last verse of chapter 8. That might be worth doing again. Where the author concluded in chapter 8 verse 13, he says how the old covenant was becoming obsolete in Jesus and the new covenant. Now that statement, especially considering the Jewish audience to which the author is writing, demanded an explanation, which in fact chapters 9 and 10 are part of. And last week we learned that since the worship, that since worship of the, in the old covenant dealt solely with external matters, it could not deal with the real issue of our sinful hearts, which left, or which, um, which left distance between us sinners and a holy God. The old way could not Bring us near to God. But Jesus is our superior high priest who offers a superior sacrifice, securing our eternal redemption, cleansing our consciences and bringing us near to God. That was last week. And by this word, therefore, maybe you see for this reason in verse 15 this morning, we know that we're jumping right back into the author's explanation as to why the old covenant has become obsolete in Jesus. And this begins with Jesus' mediation and the superior benefits he secures first in 15. So the benefits of Jesus' mediation we're going to look at first. I want to read 15 again. It says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And this is not the first time the author has spoken of Jesus as our mediator. Back in chapter 8, verse 6, we learn that Jesus obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates, it says, is better, for it was enacted on better promises. Jesus' mediatory work enacted better promises, or, as we're going to see this morning, eternal inheritance in verse 15. In one sense, I think it's safe to assume that we, in this room, we understand the role of a mediator or one who, who arbitrates so that two parties can be brought together. I think we get that. The, the two parties here, obviously, uh, were sinful man and a holy God. But I think there's a caution we need to be aware of as well here. Because typically in our context, a mediator is often one who's responsible for, might we say, striking a deal or, or negotiating a compromise between two parties. Think of two warring nations sitting down to, to, to negotiate a deal by way of a mediator for peace to come about, compromise 
will be required at some level inevitably. That understanding of a mediator has no place here. There is no compromise between a holy God and sinful humanity. Jesus, our mediator, is in full agreement with our sin, and He in fact shares in the perfection of the Father's divine holiness. Therefore, He remains in complete agreement that the necessity, or with the necessity, of God's justice being satisfied due our sins. Jesus has not come to strike a deal. Jesus has not come to negotiate a compromise on our behalf. No, as our mediator, as our go-between, Jesus has come to lovingly decide to take the justice of God due us by becoming our sacrifice. The text says He came to redeem, to set free those who committed transgression under the first covenant. In the language of set free and ransom or Here in our text, again, it testifies to the nature of our sin. Sin is bondage. Sin is enslavement. Sin demands payment. And in His mediatory work, Jesus spilled His blood to redeem those who committed transgressions, He says, under the first covenant. Now, we find here a a deep theological truth regarding what one author calls the retroactive power of Jesus' death or His blood. In other words, the effects of Jesus' death reached all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Paul speaks of, in Romans chapter 3.25 of this, when speaking of Jesus, he says, as He is the one whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins, or maybe your translation has sins previously committed. So believers in the Old Covenant were saved by faith in God, like us. They were saved by faith in God, demonstrated by their sacrifices, which testified to their repentance and their reliance upon God's grace and His mercy extended through the animal sacrifices, through the substitute that was provided. Their sacrifices they knew could not necessarily save them, but they served as evidence of their belief, their faith in the God who could. And to these, Christ's blood extended its retroactive power. So, you might have asked a question before, or heard the question asked. How were those in the Old Testament saved? By faith in Christ, just as we are. They were saved by grace through faith in God through the means He had provided in the Old Covenant, which the author of Hebrews makes very clear, finds its fulfillment in Christ and His eternal redemption. Where they looked forward to God's substitute, final substitute, we look back to the cross. I'm a simple guy, so I like the way simple people say things. Rapper Shylin says it this way, Before the cross, they were saved on credit. After the cross, we've been saved on debit. But notice what it says, the reason for this is. So those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Through the death of Christ, under the old covenant and the new, we have received an irrevocable gift. 
We have been brought into a new relationship with new benefits and eternal inheritance. And I think we could do this. There's so many things, at least for me. Uh, maybe I won't say this about you, but there's so many phrases in the Bible that I, I know, I quote, I, I use, but I don't think enough about. And I think this is one here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul, Paul speaks of it, of this as, he says, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Our inheritance flows from a a treasure chest of God's immeasurable riches in Jesus Christ to us. This includes our unhindered access to God in heaven. We know that. Into the very presence of God and the company of His Son, which through the redemption, which comes through the redemption, He purchased for us on the cross. Our inheritance includes all of the benefits to which we know something of now. Our forgiveness, the removal of our guilt, our freedom, our adoption into God's family, our fellowship with the Spirit, our walking in the newness of life, our beholding the glory of God. All of these things that we know something of now, but in their fullest sense then. Brothers and sisters, our eternal inheritance includes us being captivated for all eternity by beholding and experiencing the majestic glory of God in Christ. In the presence of God forever. And that will never become some sort of static thing. I'm picking my way through a wonderful book, you might want to write this down, called Glory Now Revealed by the author Andy Davis. On this very subject of eternal inheritance, of the glory that waits us, or heaven itself. In the opening chapter, he, he challenges the reader, and really challenged me, to consider the assumptions we often regard etern- uh, regarding eternity, or the glory that awaits us. He said, most of us assume that upon entering into glory, we will instantly know and experience everything that there is to know and experience of God. I don't know if that's you, but I might not have said it just like that, but... Yeah, I have somewhat of a static view of heaven. When I enter into at that moment, I will know the fullness and experience the fullness of God. In other words, we tend to hold this very static view of glory. But that cannot be right. We're never going to be omniscient like God. We We will never have the capacity of knowing all things. And God, the one whom we will be in the presence of forever, is an infinite being. There's no ceiling to the glory of God. There's no bottom in the sea of His beauty. There's no top or bottom, no end or beginning to God. Therefore, our internal, eternal inheritance involves us forever knowing and experiencing the glory of God in an ever-increasing and deeper way for all eternity. What are you saying, Pastor Jimmy? I honestly don't really know. Paul says it's riches. It's riches. Romans 5 5 speaks of God giving us a hope that does not disappoint because God has poured into into our hearts his, his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That verse says a lot, but that verse most assuredly says 
assumes that whatever we expect heaven to be, whatever we expect to happen in heaven will in fact happen. We're not going to be let down. We live in a world of promises that disappoint at every corner. We let each other down very often. Brothers and sisters, our eternal inheritance will never disappoint. If we're believers this morning, for those of us who are, we can rest in the truth that what we experience in this life, no matter how bad it is, is the worst it will ever be. What awaits us in eternity is indescribable riches forever. If you're not a believer this morning, you also need to hear the warning that this text gives. That this life is the best you will ever experience. As we're going to see a bit later, he's going to say it's appointed for everyone to die once and then judgment. For the believer, standing in the assurance of the one who took our judgment for us, we await eternal riches. We wait the receiving of our internal inheritance, which Christ, our mediator, has secured. Now, in verses 16 to 22, the author moves from what our, what, the, the, really the what of our redemption to the how of our redemption. And the how is tied up with death or the shedding of blood. So next we want to look at the necessity of Jesus' blood. Now, teaching on this portion of Scripture, really on chapter 9 as a whole, uh, Kent Hughes, a pastor that I enjoy listening to, he, he tells a story of an experience he had in college with an English professor who was expressing his horror at the lines of, of, William, Cowper, of William Cowper's famous hymn that we sing often. Actually, we're going to sing it later. There is a fountain. And he, he did so by publicly mocking it in the classroom. Hughes records his, pre, his professor reading the lines of this hymn out loud and very expressively. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains, he kept repeating. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunge beneath that blood, lose all their guilty stains. After reading these lines, the professor crudely and condescendingly referred to this cherished hymn as primitive outlandish sediments, speaking of, a, of, of, of us as dog paddling through a fountain of blood. He depicted it as a slaughterhouse religion, which only Bible thumpers out of their mind would believe. And though the, the crudeness of his language made Hughes feel uncomfortable, he said it made him honestly admit something about his antagonistic professor. He had a point. The Old Testament sacrificial system was a gory scene. Considering its numerous animals and the amount of blood that was spilt, he concluded, Hughes, that the Old Covenant truly rested on a sea of blood. But the reality is all the sights and sounds and smells of the old sacrificial system were very intentional. They were intended to point to one thing. Sin demands death. The shedding of blood. Which is, which is what verses 16 to 23 expound upon. In these seven verses, the word blood shows up no less than six times. Now, how did Jesus secure our eternal inheritance? By means of His death. By means of the spilling of His blood. In verse 16, the author 
makes a connection between covenant and last will or testament. Look at it, verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. I think we get this. A will is activated or put into effect upon the death of the one who made the will. So right, an elaborate will with all sorts of benefits spelled out, ready to be handed down, means absolutely nothing until the person who made it dies. For the inheritance to take effect, a death must occur. This was true in the Old Covenant, or the First Covenant, as verse 18 spells out. It says there, therefore, not even the First Covenant was inaugurated without blood. In other words, the benefits of the First Covenant were not put into effect until death occurred. We're now drawn back in verse 19 to the covenant initiation ceremony. We looked at this at length in our study through Exodus to give evidence of this. It says here, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. So upon reading the stipulations of the covenant outlined in the law, including both the blessings and the curses, Israel, Israel corporately affirmed they would what? We remember this. They said, we will keep the law. We will obey the Lord. And after this, a public sacrifice of animals took place, calves and goats, followed with their blood being sprinkled on both the book of the covenant and all the people, causing Moses to announce, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. But this sprinkling of blood went even further. Verse 21. We see it, so it says there, in the, in the same way he sprinkled with the blood the, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Now this sprinkling of blood signified a few things. First, purification was needed for sinful man to enter into, the, into a relationship with the holy God. And purification came by sacrifice, by blood. And the blood of animals signified that the punishment for covenant disobedience was death itself. But the death of these animals and this covering of blood testified to God's grace in providing a substitute to stand in the place of the covenant breakers. Disobedience, covenant unfaithfulness, could only be forgiven by the shedding of blood as was the sign of the covenant. This led to the author's conclusion in verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So just as the first covenant was put into effect with the death of animals, the death of Christ, the shedding of His blood is put into effect, the new covenant, bringing about our eternal inheritance and the forgiveness of sin. But why death? Why all of this blood? Well, we know from Leviticus 17.11, God makes clear that the life is in the blood. Don't complicate, overcomplicate this. Without blood, there ain't no life. The sacrificial system depicted this in every way. The visual image of an animal's life fading away as their blood drained out would have been seared into the minds of Old Testament worshipers. Now, I know this language of blood being spilled and all of this is a bit uncomfortable, but we need not miss the significance of the connection between death, the shedding of blood, atonement for sin, and covenant. The act of sin brings about the consequence of death or the demand for the sinner's blood, their very life. The sacrifice of animals were harsh reminders of this. Yet they also served as a means of grace. 
God making a way to atone for sin. Blood in the Old Covenant symbolized the seriousness of sin and our need for forgiveness by way of a substitute. In all of this, we've hit this every week, it's worth repeating and going back to again, all of this finds its fulfillment in the cross of Christ. Jesus is the mediator of a new, of the new and better covenant because it's established by the shedding of His very blood. As the sinless Son of God, the shedding of Jesus' blood secures our eternal redemption. The death of Christ has enacted God's immeasurable rich will for us, our eternal inheritance. And all of this hinges on the shedding of blood because all of this hinges on the forgiveness of sin. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So what does all this language of blood say to you? Does it speak to some sort of primitive, outdated religious system? Or does it speak to the seriousness of your sin? And does it speak to the loving heart of God spilled out for you? Through His Son providing us forgiveness and cleansing. You know, I wish that professor, maybe he did, I don't know. This is just me. I wish that professor would have kept reading that great hymn. And third stanza says, Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supplied, redeeming love has been my theme, and shall be till I die. Do you know this love of God in Christ? The one who would spill his very blood? as an atoning covering for your sin, that He would offer you forgiveness of sin and eternal life through the shedding of His very blood? Do you know this one? Do you see the love of God poured out for you in Jesus? This is what all this blood says. We sang last week where your love runs red at the cross. What a beautiful line. But there's something unique about Jesus' sacrifice we need to see, which ties all this together in these final verses. It says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now, this is the third time the author has referred to the earthly Old Covenant tabernacle as being a copy or a pattern of the heavenly thing. And even though they were copies, they still needed to be purified by the blood of animals. But the heavenly things warrant better sacrifices. While the animal sacrifices were sufficient to purify the earthly, they were not sufficient for what's heavenly. This demanded Jesus. This is the better sacrifice. He's the better sacrifice who offers superior purifying. Now, this does not imply that the things of heaven somehow need purification. The presence of God does not need cleansing. What's being communicated here then? We need to not forget the author is building an analogy between the earthly tent and the heavenly sanctuary. He's been doing this for a while. And we need to be clear that it was the sins of the people and not just the earthly character or the substance, earthly substance that polluted the first tabernacle. People, we did. Humanity polluted it with our sin. The people's sin is what formed a barrier preventing them from coming into God's presence, exposing them to God's very wrath. So if the people's sin resulted in a barrier keeping them out of an earthly tent, how much more a true tent? This is the analogy here. 
is that Christ's sacrifice has removed the otherwise impenetrable barrier and its promise of judgment that stood over us. And how has Jesus done this? By entering to heaven as our representative on our behalf. Verse 24, please put your eyes there. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true tent, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. On our behalf. Jesus in our place. That's an accurate gospel description and a phrase. Jesus died in our place. Jesus spilled His blood for our sins. Jesus offered up His sinless, perfect life as a substitute for us. As verse 14 last week we looked at states through the, stated, through the eternal Spirit, Jesus offered Himself without blemish to God for our sins. Brothers and sisters, that's the heart of the gospel message. But that's not all this communicates. Because Jesus' representation goes further, or might we say it continues on even more. Jesus did more than secure our salvation in the past. Jesus stands in our place right now. We can draw near to God because Jesus died for us in our place as our substitute, yes. But we also draw near to God because Jesus lives for us. He forever lives for us. As Hebrews 7.25 says, forever lives for us, making intercession for us. We need to soak in this truth. We need to soak in the truth of those three simple words. On our behalf. Right now, believer, Jesus is active on your behalf pleading the merits of His blood moment by moment for you through His ongoing intercessory work. That means that at your worst moment, at your lowest point, in the darkest, deepest nights of your soul, in the midst of your greatest failure, the spotless Son of God stands in the presence of God on your behalf. He entered through the perfection of His person, through the shedding of His spotless blood. His death covers you and His life is interceding for you. But we need to make a clarification here. While Christ stands continuously might we say repeatedly on our behalf in heaven he is not having to offer himself repeatedly for our sins his sacrifice was such that it needs not nor can it be repeated like that of the old covenant verse 25 nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
Do you know we're at the end of the ages? Peter tells us that upon the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ, we've entered into the last days. Here we find the uniqueness of Jesus' sacrifice. His sacrifices put away sins because his sacrifice was, notice the language, of himself. The priest of the old covenant, the mediation they offered was full of repetition. It, their, their understanding of their role was that it was, it was ongoing and continual. For their sacrifice was the blood of animals, which could not deal, could not do away or put away sin. It could temporarily hold back God's wrath, but it could not truly deal with sin. For the priest of the old covenant, the mediation they offered was full of repetition. For their sacrifice was the blood of animals, which could not do away with sin. It could repeatedly hold, it could temporarily hold back God's wrath, but it could not do, truly deal with sin. It could not cleanse their hearts. But Jesus entered not into the earthly tent. And he entered not in, not with the blood of animals. He entered into the true tent, the presence of God, by way of his perfect, spotless blood. He put away sin because his sacrifice was of himself. This is why John proclaimed as Jesus came walking towards the disciples, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Due to the nature of Jesus' perfect person, His sacrifice of Himself ended all sacrifices. When Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished, Jesus was not responding to anything. He was declaring something. He was declaring that through the unique perfection of His person, that His death upon the cross, the shedding of His blood, had brought to fulfillment all the Old Covenant pointed to. His death accomplished what every other death could not. The removal of sin. The true cleansing of our conscience. The destruction of all barriers between us and God. The repetitive attempts to hold back the wrath of God from the people of God was over. For Jesus took it fully upon Himself on the cross. And by so doing, He forever put away sin for all who trust in Him. Brothers and sisters, there is real and eternal security in the Christian life. But it's not to be found in us. It's to be found in the one who stands on our behalf. We just finished as a church uh, going through the book Gentle and Lowly. Phenomenal book. If you, didn't, if you haven't read it, I highly encourage you to read it. In chapter 23, the author reminds us, in light of the finished work of Jesus, that our salvation is no less secure today than it will be in the future when we stand in heaven. That don't sound right. Right? That can't be right. How is our salvation more secure today than we'll be standing in the presence of God? But the reason it doesn't sound right is because we tend to believe the security of our salvation is dependent upon us and our sin. We, we, that either our security or, might we say, our insecurity of our salvation is dependent upon us and our sin. 
that our ongoing sin as believers somehow diminishes the security of our salvation, which this verse won't allow for. But it says it was finished. It was a once-for-all sacrifice. We need to bask in the security of what Jesus has done on our behalf. He did this for us. He spilled His blood for you, if you know Him. He stands for you, believer, forever interceding on your behalf. His sacrifice was a once for all. And His intercession is forever. There's no more secure than we can get in that. We are, allow, we are to allow the truth of that reality to captivate our hearts and compel us not to sin. Or to sin less. Now the author further, he's going to add some further proof here in, for, for this once for all sacrifice of Jesus in the final two verses. Beginning in verse 27. And just as is it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. God has appointed that every one of us will die, and after that, judgment. Human life is not repeated. There is a finality to human existence. Our lives are lived once before God and then comes judgment. Death results neither in reincarnation, neither does it result in a nothingness, nor is it a promised happiness for everyone. God will assess our lives. And the most important essential assessment is where we will be found standing. In Christ or in our sin? Under the due wrath of God for our sin or in the one who took the wrath of God for us? It says here, He will appear a second time. But not as He did back in verse 11. The first time it says that He appeared to deal with sin. No, He did that once for all in His first appearing on the cross. The second appearing will be to save those who eagerly wait for Him. He will come to usher us into the fullness of our salvation and dispense the benefits of our eternal inheritance. But for those who are waiting for Him, we don't have much time, but it's worth asking the question, what does waiting look like? We could say much here. Faithfulness, obedience, living, living a life for Christ. And that all be true. But that's not really the author's point here. Given the context of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice, I think waiting looks like resting. It looks like resting in the security of our salvation and longing for the fullness of our inheritance that awaits us. It means resting in the truth that God has set us free in Christ. He has secured our eternal redemption. Waiting means resting in the death of Christ. Jesus died for you. Jesus spilled His blood for you. Resting means living and waiting in light of the life of Christ. That He lives for you, forever interceding for you. The sovereign Lamb of God is currently right now interceding for you, pleading the merits of His blood on your behalf. That's what waiting looks like.
So the question is, are you waiting for Christ? We could say, are you resting in Him? We like to import all kinds of things into our understanding of God and sin. We, we like to believe the wisdom of this world, that we can earn our way to God, and that we can think our way to God, that we can do enough to make our way back to God. The Bible is very clear. We live, we die, we stand before God. question is where will we be standing in our sin or in Christ in his shed blood and the love of God offered to us through Jesus on our own sin our own pride our own willpower which will ultimately lead us to a place of eternal separation from God church are we waiting for him are we resting in His death? Are we resting in His life for us? We're going to sing in just a minute that song that was mocked. We're going to sing it with a... It's got a modern line that was added to it where it says, Hallelujah, fountain full of love for us. I want us to pray. I'm going to pray in just a minute and they're going to come up. But I want to give us 30 seconds to just reflect on the text before we sing. Because we want to sing not as just echoing our voices around the room. We want to sing with a confession of our heart. But this is the Christ that we know. This is the Christ that we love. But this is the one that we're resting in. His blood spilled on our behalf. Father, Uh, we come to you as sinners. We come to you in Christ. We come by way of his death. We come in the assurance of his life on our behalf. God, I pray you would remind us of the truth of just how secure our lives as believers are in your hands. But God, I pray for anyone in this room who doesn't know you, you would make it evidently clear to what they already know deep down in their heart, how radically insecure their life is in their own hands. And that God, they would see the Christ Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God, they would see this one, this eternal Son, the one who upholds the very universe by the word of His power, the one who is the exact imprint of the Father, they would see Him as the one who stands on their behalf if they place faith in Him. God, forgive us as believers for believing in your death for us, but trying to live our lives for ourselves. For trying to believe that, yes, you stood in our place 
in your death, but now we stand in our own place and try to muscle up and live the Christian life. God, remind us that all those places we tend to hide our sin, those are the places you want to come and love us the most. Help us to repent. See the one who stands interceding for us, pleading the merits of his spilt blood for us. And God, as we sing this song, prayer would not just come into our minds and out of our hearts, but it would, out of our lips, but it would come from our heart. It would be a confession that we sing. In Jesus' name we pray.